morning, everybody. I'm flying solo here, but that's okay. Steve had some family issues. You know, have six kids. It'll be fun, they said. Um, my Mine has been away for, uh, since Sunday, he's been at a state competition. And, uh, you know, I'm going to miss him when it's gone. But man, life is easier <laughs> when you don't have a <laughs> My wife and her are like, wow, we feel good, rested, and everything. So anyway, I'll be glad for him to come back today. So God knows what he's doing. Well, this morning I want you, if you'll, if you'll think about it with me, think about how we communicate. There's a phrase in Greek that they say Jesus came in the Kairos. And most of the time today when we say, say Kairos, you think of the prison ministry if you've heard of it. But Kairos is a, is a Greek phrase. Don't know the Hebrew version of it, but it's a Greek phrase that means just at the right time. Uh, in, in, sometimes translated in the fullness of time. But there was the sense in at least John's gospel that Jesus came just when he was supposed to. He came in the Kairos. Just nick of time isn't right. It's it's more the perfect moment. So if we take that seriously and we think about communication, I mean, I put my son on a bus Sunday, and with modern communication, right, I can text him. I can call him. I can actually track him. Uh, we have the, the find my phone, and so I can tell wherever he is. Yes, I'm that parent that has a tracker on my child. Don't judge me. It's, it's okay. It's, it's the way it is. But do we communicate better now than you did with your when you were growing up or with your grandparents? I mean, we have all this technology but do we really communicate better? Probably not better, but more frequently. Yeah, more frequently we say less. Yeah, shorter exchanges, nothing face to face, a little bit, a lot more. Yeah. What do you want for lunch? I don't know. I mean, that's it's you know our great communication revolution. What do you want from Subway? Nothing. <laughs> you know, I. I just think about going away on trips when I was in high school, and I didn't have a cell phone. Um, I can't. I guess I called my parents. I don't remember. I mean, I'm a I'm a nut if Jason doesn't call. So why, when it came to communication, did Jesus come at the time that he did? Why not, in a sense, come now? Or in a hundred years from now, when maybe communication is even more instantaneous. What was it? How was it that he intended to communicate with the whole world? I think that was his plan. But how how does he intend to do it? Exactly, and that's that's exactly right. Um, so that's where we're going to pick up in Mark uh, chapter three. Um, if I could find my right spot, begin with verse 13. So Mark chapter 3, verse 13. So just a, a little context here. We've talk, been talking, Jesus is, 
is doing great, right? He's, he's got huge crowds following him. People are very interested in the miracles. He initially had a lot of acceptance as a, as a great rabbi teaching in synagogues. And then he was a miracle worker. And then with some of his phrases as son of man, they begin to realize, whoa, this, is, this guy thinks he's the Messiah or he is the Messiah. So it's, it's, in a sense, a little bit overwhelming. But 13, afterwards, Jesus went up on a mountain and called out the ones he wanted to go with him. Now, if, if you're on Wednesday night, you'll know uh, where he grows up uh, is full of mountains. It's funny. Uh, I was just watching a trailer for The Chosen, and they were... Uh, showing Jesus giving the Sermon on the Mount, and it's a completely flat field. It, you know, it looks like West Texas because it's where it's filmed. This is West Texas, but anyway, um, Galilee, where he gave the Sermon on the Mount, all that is very, very mountainous, and uh, so it, it, it gives us a geographical location. But also, um, what happens on mountaintops in Scripture? Do it. Yeah. It's, it's a place of revelation. It's a place where God talks. Uh, it's from Mount Sinai to Mount Zion. Uh, it all happens on mountaintops. So they would have gotten that. Jesus is where he's at. He's on a mountaintop. Something is going to happen. And they came to him. Then he appointed 12 of them and called them his apostles. They were then to accompany him, and he would send them out to preach, giving authority to cast out demons. These are the twelve he chose. And then they go on to list it. So there's, there's a lot here uh, going on. So Jesus has his twelve disciples. And remember, these are, are Talmudim, uh, Talmud singular, Talmudim plural. These are rabbis in training. This is an incredible honor in their society, especially in Galilee where he's from. They are uh, very much in the rabbinic movement. So he has selected these 12, in essence, to be his source of communication. As we always say, rabbis don't write anything. They don't write books. They don't write Gospels. They write in the hearts of their Talmudim. They write in the hearts of their disciples. So this is a little out of order in Mark's Gospel compared to how the others handle it. But Jesus seems to take this process of you're, you're a disciple, you're a Talmudim, you go through the process of studying with your rabbi, and then at a certain point when he thinks you're ready, he promotes you to rabbi. Jesus changes that, and instead of promoting them to rabbi, as they would have expected, he promotes them to apostle. Now there's a tendency to think, oh, well, apostle, Jesus is creating something new. He is and he isn't. In the world of communication back in uh, the first century, they didn't write, have the cell phone where they could have this long conversation back and forth. You know, what, what are you doing for dinner? I don't know. What are you? Uh, so they, they had to have different ways of communicating. 
One of the ways, I'll do this quickly, one of the ways that they did was synagogues, and again, remember this is part of the rabbinic movement, um, they're, they're focusing more on scripture than they are the temple. So on Saturdays, each community, we, we've seen the synagogue in Nazareth, we've seen the synagogue in Capernaum, uh, the community of men <laughs> would gather together and they would study the Bible together. This was their, their focus. Now, how would you do it if one synagogue wanted to communicate with another or one rabbi wanted to communicate with another? How would you, you know, this is important stuff that you're trying to share. How would you, how would you do that? Do what? Send messengers. And again, that's, that's the brilliant way to do it. There's a tendency to think that we would just send a letter. And there is some of that that goes on, but how long is that conversation? So I want to say this to you. Okay, so I send a letter. And then the letter goes, it gets received, and they send a letter back. There's no postal system in the Roman world. You have messengers that have to either you pay them pretty significantly or a member of your community has to go do it. So what they have in Hebrew is called a shalach. And that's, that's a mouthful, right? Shalach. It means the one that was sent. So what you would do is take a person from that synagogue and you would, in, in essence, make him a proxy. This person would be enough in the know, in the understanding, that they were authorized to speak, in essence, for the synagogue. And so you would send the shalach out, and you wouldn't have to exchange back and forth. I mean, they, they could speak for the synagogue. We actually see this a little later in the New Testament. Remember, Paul is authorized, they say, in Acts to go out and hunt for Christians. So this authorization that he has is to be a shalak, is to be one that is sent. Again, he can act as, as you know, uh, prosecutor, judge. Uh, he has, in a sense, that authority representing the, the community that he's come from to do that. So that's what Jesus seems to be doing. He's taking this shalak idea. Now, we always have to remember, we're dealing with the Gospels in Greek. So instead of the word shalak, they have to come up with something uh, that is Greek, and that's where we get apostolos, which is the Greek word. So again, Jesus doesn't use the word apostle. He, I think, I don't know this for sure, but I think he used shalak. Saying to these 12 disciples, all right, I'm not just going to make you teachers of tradition. That's part of your training, and that's much of what you'll do. But I'm, I'm taking you to be the sent. I'm authorizing you to be, in essence, my proxy, my form of communication. You are the one that's going to speak in my name. Now, we know in this particular case, this is kind of a dry run. This is a training exercise that he's going to do for, for them, and then later they're going to get the full, uh, the full Monty, the, the, the full promotion. 
So that's what Jesus is sort of taking from his culture and using. I think the power of this is that Jesus is going to tweak this a little bit. He's not just sending them as a Shalak from Capernaum or even as one of his disciples. The way he does this, he's sending them as a Shalak from God, from the kingdom of, of heaven. So it's, it's a much bigger kind of thing. They really are the sent people to represent God's kingdom. And that's huge. How, how do I know that? Well, the first thing he does, uh, they were to accompany him, and he would send them out to preach. Do your translations have something else for 14 other than preach? I don't like that. Does it say preach? Yeah. So, what do you think of when we say preach? Lecture. <laughs> Lecture, yeah. Uh, moralize. Uh, I think it's Caruso. I'm not, I'm not great in Greek. Uh, Carusos, Carusa. It's like to proclaim. It's, it's what a herald does. That's where the word comes from in Greek. So like the guy that marks in front of the king and says, you know, behold, um, the, he that sits on the iron throne, king of the Andals, if you watch Game of Thrones, uh, the king of the first men, the Roinar, it's the guy that gives all your titles. So in a sense, Jesus is saying, you're sent to be the one that proclaims, the one that announces. And that's a little different. Because again, Shalak is not really proclaiming the synagogue. They're just representing it. But Jesus is changing it here and saying, oh no, you're, you're representing a kingdom. You're representing someone that is, is the great power, is, is the great king. It's not just to be pastors. It's not just to be um, a pastor. So 15, he gives them authority to cast out demons. Now this is going to set up a discussion we'll do in verse 20. But just think about that phrase for a minute. Jesus invests them with the power to cast out demons. Now we usually get really excited about the second half of that statement, casting out demons. Ooh, that sounds that sounds weird. But the first half of that should also get our attention. Who has the power to grant you authority to cast out demons? God. Uh, trust me, no regular sent apostle from a synagogue has been given the authority to cast out a demon. You know, that's not in the job description. Oh, by the way, um, this, is, this is a whole different level. And again, they're focusing, Jesus is focusing on authority, on power. Who has all of this power? God. So he's making them heralds, uh, proclaimers of the king. He's making them uh, proxies for the power of God to, to overcome demons. 
We've talked about it before, but it's, it's so important whew, to get this in, in first century Galilee. Remember, Jesus grew up in the hood. He doesn't grow up in the nice suburbs of Jerusalem, right? He's not in an all-Jewish community. He's in a very segregated, very mixed world. You have incredible... Uh, Populations. In fact, the majority population in Galilee is not Jewish. It's, it's Gentile, which would be a combination of Greeks, Syrians, Phoenicians, Romans. So everybody has their own little towns. I say little towns. You know, Tiberius and Sipporah are the big Gentile towns, and they're huge. They're absolutely massive, 10,000 plus, where Jesus comes from a town of eh, maybe a couple hundred, maybe. Um, so little bitty Jewish towns, huge. Huge um, Gentile towns, but in Greek culture, uh, it was as strange and bizarre as this sounds. Uh, desired to be possessed, everybody wanted a demos, uh, this spiritual guide. It's like a genie. It's like uh, someone that helps you along. Great people are said to always have had demos. Uh, Alexander the Great, famously, uh, is said to have had this spirit that came to help him. Remember the fortune-telling girl in Acts. Uh, She is a slave, but she makes a lot of money for her masters because she can supposedly tell the future. One of the ways that you would demonstrate your loyalty to the emperor in Rome is offering a sacrifice to the, we translate it as genius of the emperor, but that it's not his brilliance. It again is this spiritual push uh, that he has. So from the Oracle of Delphi, uh, from the ecstatic shaking fits that we see in Corinthians, uh, this is very desirable. So it's all over the place. And people want this. Um, You know, every once in a while, have you noticed the psychic um, off of the loop now in Midland? Uh, It's it's over by the the airport that we have here across the street where the, um, not that I'm giving you directions. (laughs) Uh, um, Anyway, uh, who goes to a psychic? I mean, they're just taking your money. It's it's an absolute farce and a joke. Unless you get that one chance in a million where it's not. And then what have you done? What have you done? So as bizarre as it sounds, when Jesus is giving them authorities, uh, it's, it's pushing back against Greek and Roman culture. It's pushing back against the corruption of the world. But it really is people suffering. Uh, I mean, Mary Magdalene, who follows uh, Jesus. So Mary from Magdala. Um, what, what's her story? Do you know? Yeah. She, <laughs> so how, how many demons did she have? Seven. So in Hebrew, what, what does that mean? Yep. Remember that girl you dated in high school and you thought she was completely crazy? 
This is the Bible saying she was completely out of her gourd. There was no more room at the end. All the demons had filled it up. She was a nut job. All right, seven demons. It's as bad as you can get. So it's just it's important to sort of get the the milieu of of that culture. It's it's bad. It's bad. Between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, there is a massive cultural interest in demons and angels. It just, it really, really grows exponentially. So Jesus, again, is reflecting that culture a little bit, but he is not battling in it. I mean, does Jesus do a big show when he casts out a demon? No. I mean, it's really kind of boring. He says, get out. Shut up and get out. Um, Jesus is this authority. He's not here doing this kind of battle. If you really get bored, I can bring you uh, a lot of magic spells that we've recovered from Christian sources later in the Coptic period in Egypt, uh, but also just general Jewish stuff where they're um, battling demons. And it's, it's long and drawn out. In our little history alcove over here, you have a demon trap that comes from a little later if you've never seen it. Um, So it just looks like a piece of pottery, but they've written spells and scriptures on the top of it. And what you would do is you would turn it upside down and you would bury it under your house. So if one of the demons tried to come from the underworld, they would get to the top, they would run into these scriptures, and they'd be uh, caught. Now, that's utter nonsense, isn't it? I mean, Jesus didn't just make all these games for us. Uh, He says, I have this authority, but... What is the first thing these disciples are meant to do, these the Shalak, these apostles? To proclaim. This kingdom has come. Uh, there's heralds for it now, proclaimers, and then you're going to have powers over the spiritual of darkness. So this great introduction to who these guys are. I mean, this is what people are noticing when they say Jesus teaches with authority. He teaches with Shimka. This is unlike anything we've ever heard before. He's not changing Scripture. He's not throwing it away. He's bringing it forward in a way that gives its full meaning. So being sent from the community of God is now being sent from God. So then we get into the list. And some of these are very familiar, and some of them are not. So Simon whom he named Peter. So we know Peter, uh, a great deal about him. He's a fisherman. Uh, You guys know that. Who's he selling the fish to? The Romans. And it's really important to look at these lists and what they say and what they don't say. How many names does Peter have? Two. And like I joked on Sunday, it doesn't mean he's a southerner. He doesn't have, he's not Billy John or whatever. Um, Why does he have two names? Right, he's got a, his Jewish name, his mama gave him, Shimon, Simon, and then here they're saying Petros, the rock, you know, dumbhead, uh, blockhead, uh, that Jesus calls him. 
but it's, it's his business name that he, he works with other people. Do all of the disciples have these two names? No. This is an indicator on how different uh, these guys are. Uh, not everybody has as much dealing with the Romans as, as he does. And some of the other ones are like this too. Um, so Simon, he's got two names. And then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, but Jesus nicknamed them the sons of thunder. And you remember that story. Uh, they got mad one day, and they knew Jesus could do cool things. And so they said, hey, could you th- send a lightning bolt and kill these people because they won't feed us dinner? And Jesus is like, no, uh, what's wrong with you two? Uh, so he never let them forget it. You know, He's always calling them sons of thunder. And I love that about Jesus, that he had that kind of sense of humor with them. You know, that he, he would always give him a little jab. Hey, remember the day you wanted to kill everybody in that town? <laughs> You're nuts. Um, so uh, James and John. John, of course, will tell us what about himself? Exactly. I'm the one that he actually loved. It's interesting that Mark missed that fact. but uh, So then we have Andrew, who's the brother of Simon. And we wish we knew more about some of these guys. Philip. Now just think about that name for a minute. What kind of name is that? Is that a good Jewish name? Nope. It's about as far as you can get from it. We know a little bit about Philip, uh, but this is pretty striking here that he's got a full-on Greek name you know, Philip, the father of Alexander. Uh, so you've you've got sort of soft collaborators like Simon and Andrew uh, that are selling stuff to the Romans. Uh, Philip seems to be full on uh, changing the other side. I mean, uh, I wish we knew more, but just just the name Bartholomew, which is a Jewish name, Matthew, who we've talked about before. Uh, he is a tax collector. Remember, he's a full-on collaborator. He's by far the wealthiest of this group. He's by far probably the wealthiest uh, in in Capernaum. I mean, he's making some coin, but he's selling out his own people. He's working for the Romans uh, to to literally take the blood out of his own people. And that Jesus called him was a shock to everybody. So you've got soft collaborators like the people that are making money off the Romans. You've got full-on people who are uh, working for the Romans. Uh, James, uh, son of Alphaeus, again, another very mixed name. James is Hebrew, uh, but son of Alphaeus. Alphaeus is not Hebrew. Uh, Matthew, son of Alphaeus, also correct? Yes, yes. Not brothers. Not brothers, no, no relation. So we wonder about that. Yeah. Thaddeus, don't know hardly anything about him, but look how they're, they're listing the names so far. I mean, some of them you get a little more information, you get a second name, and then we get to these bottom two. Simon, 
the zealot. And then Judas Iscariot. So we'll, we'll take Simon the zealot first. Um, out of context, we have a really hard time understanding this. But the zealots, we know from historical sources, are the resistance fighters, the, the freedom fighters against Rome. It's not as, uh, this is where King James really went off the road here, <clears throat> that he was just a zealous person. No, it, it, the, these are well known to Josephus and others as the, the, the fighters. Um, they are not soldiers, um, they're they're really terrorists. I mean, in, in a good way. I mean, sort of. They, they're not professional soldiers. They're not like the Roman legions. But they are so zealous, so driven by their faith in God, that they, they do incredible things. When the Jewish revolt starts... Um, about 30 years after Jesus' resurrection, the zealots will ambush a Roman legion um, and kill everyone. Now, the Roman legion was the premier military formation uh, of, the, of the time. This does not happen to Rome. Uh, you can sometimes defeat a legion, um, but you don't wipe it out. I mean, it's very rare. Uh, it happened in Britain. Uh, it happened in Germany. Um, um, and all of these are, are like 9-11 moments for Rome. And it happens in uh, Judea. Now, I'll brag for a minute. Um, you know, as a German, our, our cultural... <clears throat> Ability, our cultural affinity is to war, right? I mean, the French are great uh, cooks and architects, and the British are great, write great literature. What do we Germans do? We fight. We 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 kill people. That's what we do. Um, so I, I get that Arminius and the Germans were able to defeat the Roman legion, and to a certain degree, I get that the Celts and the Scots were able to to defeat because Scots are tough people, right? But Jews. Really? I mean, and the, the kicker was the Romans quickly, because the Romans are bullies, they, they can't have the terror uh, that precedes them be diminished, because as powerful as their army is, they can't take on the whole world at, this, at one moment. So they quickly send another legion in, they bring it down from Syria, and the zealots do it again. They kill the legion, 5,000 men to a man. It's amazing. So Simon was one of these guys. Now, at the time of Jesus, there's just a lot of ambushes. There's a lot of fighting. I mean, it isn't full-scale revolt like it, it will become. But again, Simon is in the resistance. And this isn't passive. We sit, go home, Rome. I mean, this is ambush, kill, murder. Uh, fight the Romans as they fight us. So we stop for a second and think about, so how did all this work? I mean, on the one hand, you got the guys that are living in the fish towns of North uh, Sea of Galilee making money, selling garum fish to the Romans. You got Matthew who's working for the Romans. And you got a guy who kills the Romans? 
It makes us appreciate the Last Supper a little bit more. <laughs> um, how? Why? Uh, Jesus is doing this. And again, these are his apostles. These are the ones he sent to. So why, why do you think he has such a diverse group here? Yeah. It's all elements of society. Do you think he could have sent uh, Matthew to uh, proclaim the gospel to other zealots? No. What would they do to him? They'd kill him. But he could send Simon. And the same token, if he tried to send Simon to talk to other tax collectors, how would that go down? Oh, just sit here a minute. I'm going to go call the Romans so they arrest you. I mean, that, that's not going to work. So many times, in, I see this in modern, I mean, I'll just be honest. In the 60s, they turned Jesus into a hippie. I mean, they really did. They wanted him to be this, well, I just, you know, sit around and wear sandals and smoke drugs and talk to poor people. Um, and yes, Jesus did talk to poor people, but he talked to rich people, and he talked to middle class people, and he talked to people with great political power and people with no political power. He didn't just gravitate towards the outcasts. I mean, we've sort of taken this lump of crap um, from groups that want to morph Jesus into what he wasn't. And again, I think the best evidence here is look at the disciples. He is taking a strata, a full cut of society, I think with intention, um, being very careful, um, picking the best. He's telling us there can be good from any group. Absolutely. Uh, we'll see him uh, point out there's bad in almost every group. There is bad in every group. But there's good too. There's good Romans. And that was a hard pill to swallow. There's good Pharisees. There's a lot of bad Pharisees, but there are some good ones. It, it, he looks at the content of the heart, not just where you are in society, you know, politically or, or economically. So are we tracking? Um, I really wish... Christian literature would pick up the story of Simon the Zealot. Um, the Zealots are the up-and-coming power in Judah. By the time of the revolt, they will take control. They push out the Pharisees. They pretty much kill off uh, as much as they can. The Sadducees, they, they take over. Uh, so when it, Rome comes to destroy Jerusalem, these are the guys that, that are fighting. And, I mean, do you know the story of Masada? Uh, the, there was a, a mountaintop, a fortress that Herod had built, and uh, it's, Herod was paranoid, so he builds this, I mean, it's, it's just like a rock mountain, something out, like out of the desert, and then there's a fortress, not really a fortress, intended to be a fortress, but it ended up becoming one up top. And uh, the zealots take it over, and they will not surrender to the Romans. It takes the Romans almost three years to get the zealots out. And at the very end, the zealots all commit suicide rather than surrender to the Romans. Uh, they had plenty of food. Uh, and still today, it's kind of a national monument in Israel. They get a little too excited about it, I think. Um, but these are hardcore dudes. But 
Jesus called Simon and Yes, sir. Yeah, their oath to the service of uh, Israel. Yeah, it's um, it's a sacred place for them. Um, it, when we go, if you ever have a chance to go, you can walk up or you can ride the tram up. Don't walk up. Don't do it. I was young and thought, oh, this would be fun. <laughs> um, as great as the Jews are, they're the worst engineers the world has ever seen, ever. They can't build a straight road. They can't dig a straight cave. Don't. There's, there's, that's terrible. So anyway, so then we save the worst for last. Judas, and then what do we have this description of? Yeah, he's the traitor, but, but Judas who? Now what's that? It's his last name, exactly. Um, who's had a last name in any of this? Nobody. They don't have last names. I mean, the closest you get to their name is like James, son of Alphaeus. Um, that, that's their, their formal, you know, Jesus, son of Joseph. That's their former title. They don't have last names. And again, this is where King James completely uh, ran us off the road. We, I'll just say this. So I've got a crazy family, um, and I had a crazy cousin who got uh, pregnant out of wedlock uh, back in the uh, 80s when that stuff really, really didn't happen. And I was a pretty young kid when it happened. And so I I didn't understand, because my family wouldn't tell me when it first happened, and so they just kept talking about my cousin's condition. And so I'm a little kid, and I don't understand. And I think she's sick, because what, what's a condition? Um, well, she's pregnant, um, and all that they, they go through to, to do that. In many ways, when we read a lot of Scripture, we read it sometimes like a child, because we don't get the context What we did with Judas is we left this phrase transliterated. By transliterated, I mean we're not translating it. We're taking an approximation of the word in the original language and leaving it that way. So the phrase ishskari, we didn't translate it. We left it in that pronunciation. So we skip over that. Again, we try to treat it like a last name or something, and then we get the parenthetical, you know, who later betrayed him. Oh, well, we get that. Oh, he he did it for money. If you look at the way they listed these these guys, there's a rhythm to it. I mean, they, they tend to to pair guys. So you have Simon and James and John. These are the guys from Capernaum. Uh, They're they're sorted together. And so who would you uh, pair with Simon the Zealot or Simon the Freedom Fighter? So the Ishkari are known as the men of the dagger, which is this thing. This is actually a Roman... uh, dagger and I can what's the the smaller one the gladius is 
I used to know. Oh, I can't remember. Um, so a Roman legionnaire would carry generally two swords. Uh, this is the smaller dagger-ish. This is for nasty close quarters. Again, the Jews are not um, great warriors. Uh, they're not great weaponsmiths. So where they're going to get their weapons are from the Romans they kill. And so this Scari group are absolute terrorists. They're one degree worse than the zealots. They are not out to kill Romans so much as they're out to kill those that help the Romans. So they want to punish their own people that help the Romans so the whole nation will rise up. Josephus, uh, the historian, gives us a long description of how this worked with them. They were renowned, and this is where they got their name, um, in big cities, in crowds, like are following Jesus. Uh, two of the Scari would be dressed in just normal clothes. Uh, they would have their daggers concealed, and they would look for a sympathizer. Again, a tax collector would be a choice target. They would walk up to them in the crowd, and there would be one zealot on, or one Scari on the other one side and one on the other, and they would come and they would put their arms under yours and sort of grab you like this. Then the hitman would stab you in the kidneys to kill you, and then they would hold you so you're not quite dead. So they would hold you until they get to the edge of the crowd, and then they drop you. The intent, Josephus tells us, is terror. Because you're in this big crowd, everybody's jostling, what's going on, and then a person falls over dead. And it was in the sense they're... You know, the hand of God has punished you for your sin. These are hard, hardcore, nasty, um, Al-Qaeda kind of folks. Uh, people feared them. Jews feared them. Romans absolutely despised them. I mean, it was a kill on sight. Uh, certainly the Romans would do it, the Zealot too, but... Um, this is the most shocking uh, person that Jesus would ever have included. I mean, Simon would have been nervous around this Judas character. So why would Jesus call? I mean, this guy isn't even a freedom fighter. I mean, he's, he's a terrorist. Hmm? Assassin. Yeah, he was an assassin. That's exactly what they are. You know, even before the Crusades, when we have assassins, right? These these are uh, these are hardcore. <laughs> yeah, he learned from David, right? It's this my old cousin Joab going to come see you and take care of you. Um, and there's obviously more to the story and why Judas portrayed Jesus and what he was trying maybe to force Jesus to do, but. Yeah. This is the way order Matthew, Mark, and Luke describe. Would is there any place where Jesus ever prioritizes or lists uh, in a list like this his apostles? No, and I, I wish there was. The closest we get is that Jesus does seem to have an inner core, which rabbis will do. Sort of, these are my good students and these are my bad students. And so he does tend to put Peter and James and John in that closer. Um, but yeah, 
I have to wonder about Thomas and Bartholomew. I mean, we have so little about them. Um, but Judas gets a lot of uh, press too, doesn't he? I mean, for what uh, for what he does. But Jesus must have seen something in this terrorist that was greater than what he was doing. If you look at the Last Supper, Jesus is very focused on saving Judas. He'll say over and over again, you know, it's better for you never to be born than to go ahead with what you're trying to do. I mean, the original communion was to try to save this guy, but he won't do it. In a sense, the end, the violence that he's probably perpetrated on others, he, he does to himself. But if ever there was a lesson for what the church could be, where as different as we are as people, and it's okay to be different, the one thing that we have in common is Jesus. And that, uh, that makes it more. So as broad as expansive as this is, and I'll end this because we're running a little bit over, but how many women did Jesus call to be his disciples? Yeah, technically here, no, none. Uh, how many Romans did he call? Uh, how many uh, cross-dressing Sibelian castrates did he call? Uh, none. Um, you know, th- these are still Jewish men that have some sort of relationship with God to the extent we don't know, but Jesus does. And so this isn't, you know, Jesus picking every weirdo in the world. Um, this is still, for the most part, uh, picking men that, that have something within them. So, um, questions, comments? Yes. You were a big G and you were picked at one out of twelve. Wouldn't you wouldn't, wouldn't you think that you really were were something that you were almost representing the tribe? You know, it's true. That, that that's a great um yeah. That he's creating sort of a new new Israel. Um yeah. What one of the twelve? It's a good point, Tom. It really is. You'd feel special. But again, I wish someone would just make this picture. You know, we, we've seen all of the, uh, you know, Last Supper, but just these 12 guys sitting down and looking at each other like, what the, <laughs> what's he doing here? Um, probably like we're going to do in heaven. So. All right, well, let's pray. Father God, we thank you that today, We can be reminded that we are the sent. Just as you called these 12, it was your plan to communicate to us today. These 12, for as different as their backgrounds were, did their job, as evidenced by our presence here today. So Father God, it's your call to us that it's now our turn We pray that you can trust us. That as you give us this message, we will continue to spread it to people. From top of society to the bottom society. From those that are like us to those that are not like us. To those that are kind of questionable to even the violent. 
May we have the same kind of boldness that these 12 men did. Help us, O Lord, to know that Your plan is perfect. And this word of mouth, the sharing of Scripture, is changing our world. Help us to be part of it. In Your Son's name we pray. Amen.